Hello and welcome to the Political History of the United States, Episode 3.18, The Great Awakening. We have spent significant time already at this point discussing those critical years between the end of Queen Anne's War and the beginning of the French and Indian War. During this period of relative peace and stability, the colonies would grow and come into their own in a completely new way. We have talked about how these changes affected the economy. The last three episodes were concerned with the rise of slavery in the colonies. We will discuss as well how these changes ushered in a new American culture, a culture which was distinct from that which existed back in Britain. Well, much of the focus during this period is going to fall on subjects like population growth and the rapid development of colonial manufacturing, it is important not to discount the emergence of a uniquely American culture. Among the places where this change is going to be most poignantly felt is in religious matters. So much of the culture of the colonial United States has been tied up in religion. While the southern colonies remained mostly Anglican, you had Puritans living in New England and numerous Quakers in the middle colonies. Especially in those middle colonies and New England, religion was central to the regional identities. During the middle part of the 18th century, religion would find itself, like so many other things, at the center of a change in the colonies. Today, we are going to spend our time exploring the causes of and the practical effects of what would become known as the Great Awakening. Prior to 1680, there was little in the way of diversity of religion in the colonies. In New England, it was the Puritans who reigned supreme, whereas elsewhere, the Church of Choice tended to be Anglican. Sure, there were some pockets where there was more diversity of religion. For example, there was a small Jewish population living in New York who had been there since before the English takeover. Likewise, in Rhode Island, Roger Williams was akin to a Baptist. There were even a handful of Catholics who had made the journey to the supposed Catholic haven of Maryland. You, of course, also had the split between the Puritans, with those living in Plymouth being full separatists. However, other than this handful of relatively minor deviations, the colonies were overwhelmingly dominated by the Puritans and the Anglicans. After 1680, however, you start to see more and more groups coming into the colonies, and the numbers of religions and subsequently congregations expanded accordingly. This would become most pronounced during the first half of the 18th century, and especially during the 1740s, when the Great Awakening would influence the religious practice of thousands and thousands of colonists. Of course, however, we know that the church does not exist in a vacuum. The church itself would undergo significant changes towards the end of the 17th century, as well as moving in to the 18th century. One trend that will emerge is an attempt to bring more and more people into the church. As we have discussed before, Church membership was not the easiest thing to come by. The belief amongst Puritans is that there was nothing an individual could do in this mortal world to secure their own salvation. Sure, those who were more pure and virtuous would seem more likely destined for heaven, but really, the decision was already predetermined. Therefore, when Thomas Hooker, a Connecticut minister, attempted to expand church membership by suggesting that people could in fact have a direct influence over their own personal salvation, it did not sit well with the colonial leaders. Now, if you are thinking that you remember the name Thomas Hooker, you're right. The split between Hooker and the leadership in Massachusetts was so significant 
that Hooker actually broke away with the colony and founded Connecticut. We talked about that way back in episode 1.24. Much to the considerable chagrin of the leadership in Massachusetts, Hooker's ideas were not contained to just his congregation, but it was an idea that would spread. It was Solomon Stoddard who would continue the trend further north in Northampton, Massachusetts. Men like Cotton Mather denounced the teachings of Hooker and Stoddard, claiming that what they were arguing for was a covenant of works. In other words, through the actions of the individual, there could be some influence over their own personal self-determination. This idea would, despite being disapproved of, grow moving into the 18th century, as it provided for an opportunity to increase church membership. Now, before we go any further, I want to make a quick note about the descendants of Solomon Stoddard. Stoddard's grandson is Jonathan Edwards, somebody who we are going to be talking about a little while later today. Edwards, himself, was the grandfather of the third vice president of the United States, Aaron Burr, thus making Stoddard the great-great-grandfather of Aaron Burr. So, now you know. Regardless of having a famous great-great-grandchild, who will eventually shoot Alexander Hamilton, the actions taken by Hooker and Stoddard would grow and spread throughout the colonies. These changes, especially in New England, were driven largely because the church and the government had been forced to separate following the collapse of the Dominion government in the wake of the Glorious Revolution. Although Puritan hegemony no longer reigned supreme in the region, it did not mean that the church did not still want to influence the greater colony. With New England as a whole diversifying, it required that the church follow suit. The teaching of men like Stoddard would provide a path to accomplish this end. Though the church was now growing more diverse, having been divested from the government, that did not mean that the government of the colony still did not play favorites. What therefore emerges is a system whereby there is a greater diversity of churches throughout New England though certain churches would continue to find more support from the colonial leadership as compared to others. This most often came in the form of required tithes. One example of this is in Connecticut, where as of 1708, Baptists could now openly practice, but were still required to pay tithes towards the support of the church of choice in any specific town. This means a couple of trends are going to come to define religion in New England for the decades to follow. First, there was an undeniable diversification of religions and practices that would proliferate throughout the colonies between 1690 and 1770. Puritan hegemony was truly over. Over the course of the 18th century, you are going to see congregations of Baptists, Presbyterians, Quakers, and Anglicans to go along with those Puritan congregations. These groups would combine to become known as the Congregationalists which is to say that they are a diverse group of Calvinists who did not belong to any greater centralized church structure. The diversification of religion, combined with its official divestiture from the colonial leadership, meant that it was easier for people to practice religion within New England, although the colony could still somewhat cherry-pick their favorites through the forced tithes. The colonial leadership still was not crazy about the growing diversity, but they had little practical choice but to accept it. While the middle colonies of Pennsylvania and Delaware were largely dominated by the Quakers, 
In the southern colonies, you had the other pole of religion in the colonies in the shape of the Anglican Church. Throughout the colonies, the Anglican Church had been doing pretty well since the era of the Glorious Revolution. With William and Mary consolidating and streamlining their colonial holdings, the Anglican Church would spread more easily within the colonies. For instance, during our episodes last season, we had seen the Anglican Church extend into New England, with the building of King's Chapel in Boston by Edmund Andros, much to the very considerable irritation of the Massachusetts colonists. Though it is worth pointing out that even after Andros was ousted and William and Mary were on the throne, the church would survive. However, despite this apparent success, much of it was actually rather superficial. Part of the issue is that in the South, the church had become something of a social club, a place for social interactions, rather than a house of God. The Southern planters would use the church as a place to gather and discuss the pressing issues of the day, rather than focusing much on the religious questions. Interestingly enough, this actually had the effect of driving the lower classes in the colony away from the Anglican Church, but rather towards denominations such as the Baptists and Presbyterians. This was largely because the Anglican Church had become the church of the planter class, which had the effect of turning the lower classes away. So while the church grew during the early portion of the 18th century, it is not necessarily indicative of growing religious sentiment within the colony. In reality, the southern colonies had become far more diverse, despite outward-facing appearances. Part of the problem for the Anglican Church was that, despite the church being centralized by its very nature, as it was, the church as it existed within the colonies was astonishingly decentralized. There was no bishopric in the colonies which means that the clergy was all trained back across the Atlantic. Specifically, the colonies fell under the purview of the Bishop of London. The effect of this is that nobody from the North American colonies had any actual power within the church. If and when issues did arise, the immense distance between the colonies and London made practical communication difficult. As we have seen in matters of government, one of the biggest problems that London faced when controlling the colonies was the amount of autonomy that the distance created. This was no different in matters of religion, with the colonial Anglican Church operating with little in the way of control from centralized authorities. This is going to come back to bite the British in the future when the revolution breaks out. Rather than the Anglican Church being a link to tether the colonies to London, that connection will prove to be astonishingly fragile. The biggest driver in this increase in religious diversification throughout the colonial United States can be directly traced to the increase in population that occurred throughout the 18th century. Through a mixture of natural population growth and immigration, the colony saw a massive increase in people during the 18th century, something that would profoundly affect all aspects of colonial life, including religion. It was with this growth that other religions were allowed to grow and flourish. However, despite what seems to be growth, in the years following the end of Queen Anne's War, there was increased feelings that the colonies were straying too far away from God. There are a couple of things behind this belief, though historians today see little evidence that there was actually a mass exodus from the church occurring. With the emergence of the Enlightenment, 
Church services during the early to middle part of the 18th century were becoming increasingly theoretical. Rationalism was spreading not only through society, but had begun to leach its way into the church. One of the most noticeable ways that this presented itself was a sharp rise in the practice of Arminianism. It has admittedly been a while since we have discussed Arminianism on this podcast. By my count, it has been some 50 episodes since we last touched on that topic. However, as a quick reminder, the Arminians were that group that believed that humans had the free will necessary to influence their own salvation. The fact that such a practice was growing in popularity both in Europe and colonial North America fits in well with the growing enlightenment and a shift of emphasis onto the individual human. We discussed this earlier today when talking about men like Hooker and Stoddard. However, throughout the 18th century, we are going to see this belief grow. You likewise see a movement during this time away from the simplicity that had earlier helped to define Puritanism. This is something that you see across the board, across multiple denominations. The movement really begins with the Anglicans, who begin to expand throughout the colony. We talked about King's Chapel earlier today. Recall that when it was built, it instantly became the tallest building in Boston, something that was not lost on the Puritan leadership. Well, the churches were not being built in the grandiose style of that that you'd expect to see in England, there was a shift towards nicer meeting spaces. Well, the churches were indeed still rather simple, especially more rural communities, you do see a movement towards a more modern style in the urban areas. The Anglican Church in Charleston, St. Philip's, when built in 1722, was amongst the most impressive churches that the British had ever built in any of their colonies. The church would end up dominating the skyline for years to come. And as a quick note, if you are in Charleston and decide that you want to go see St. Philip's, well, I have bad news for you. The church was destroyed by a fire in the 1830s. The church on that spot today was built after the fire. It is worth a mention that in 1752, a taller church was built in Charleston, St. Michael's, which is still standing and you can visit if you happen to be in the area. In major urban areas, such as Boston, the reaction of the Congregationalists was to themselves build increasingly impressive meeting houses. It is during the middle part of the 18th century that you start to see not only more Congregationalist churches get built, but they are also coming in a more grandiose style. These changes range from fancier interiors to the sudden emergence of bell towers. Prior to the 18th century, the Puritan meeting houses in Massachusetts, and indeed throughout all of New England, had been simple. That had been the entire point. The Puritans had wanted to do away with the pomp of the Catholic and Anglican churches and return to a simpler type of practice. Small meeting houses were preferred over grand basilicas. However, on the surface at least, nobody seemed to care much about that anymore. What therefore has emerged religiously in the colonies prior to 1740 is a colonial structure that has significantly changed. During the 60 years prior, there had been a proliferation of new congregations. In New England, these new congregations are popping up and are practicing in a way that would have at one point been shocking. There was a steep increase in the belief of one being able to influence their own salvation. Likewise, gone are the simple meeting houses that we saw in the early days of the colonies. Churches were becoming bigger and fancier as the name of the game moved away from doctrinal strictness 
and towards increasing church membership. Despite there being no actual evidence that church attendance was in decline, the focus moved on relaxing requirements for membership in order to boost attendance numbers, and more importantly, have a degree of control over daily life in the colony. In the South, Anglicanism still, at least on paper, reigned supreme. However, over the years, the church had become more of a social club than a place of worship, as it became a status symbol for the planter class. Despite this, however, the Anglican church was growing and all throughout the colonies, more and nicer churches were being built. With the southern Anglican church dominated by the planter class, the consequence was that many of the poor farmers would end up looking elsewhere, which would act as a catalyst for the growth of even more small congregations. As we have already seen in the south, not everybody was madly in love with the changing nature of religion in the colonies. There was a sizable group that was looking for something different. Not everybody was thrilled with the direction of religion, either in the South or in New England. They disliked the new, more rational approach to religion. This presented an opportunity for smaller congregations, specifically the Baptists and the Presbyterians, who offered more simple services, more akin to what had traditionally been popular in the colonies. In the 1740s, this desire for a simpler church would manifest as the Great Awakening. Now, it would be false to pretend that the feelings that the church had become too complicated was not already a popular feeling well before 1740. Indeed, we have already seen the rise of the Baptists and Presbyterians, both in New England and in the South. The yearning to move back towards simplicity was already there. The change was that the 1740s would usher in the rise of a group of charismatic preachers whose efforts would help galvanize existing feelings into a greater movement. While the Great Awakening would touch on all the colonies, no one region would be affected nearly as much as New England, and no one person would become the face of the movement more than George Woodfield. Born in 1714 Gloucester, Whitfield would turn towards the church during his time as a student at Oxford. Whitfield would become a devout Calvinist who was known in England when, after being denied an official pulpit there, he would often take to the fields in order to preach. Drawing enormous crowds, Whitfield delivered impassioned, dramatic sermons that were said to deeply move those in attendance. Newspapers in colonial America would write about Whitfield and his actions across the ocean in England. When Whitfield made his first trip to North America in 1739, he was walking into a land which was already primed for his arrival. While Whitfield certainly was the chief attraction, there were already those in the colonies who were pushing hard on that same brand of revivalism that Whitfield was. Within Massachusetts, the leader of the movement, Whitfield notwithstanding, was Jonathan Edwards, the grandson of Solomon Stoddard. Edwards had already been preaching for years in Northampton, Massachusetts, when Whitfield came into the colonies. Edwards produced his most famous work when, in 1741, he was invited to preach in front of a congregation in Enfield, Connecticut. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God would become one of the premier works to emerge during the Great Awakening. The sermon cast the vision of an angry, vengeful God. Edwards writes that God lacks no power and that he could easily cast men into hell for any reason at any time. Edwards wrote that, The wrath of God burns against them. Their damnation don't slumber. 
The pit is prepared. The fire is made ready. The furnace is now hot, ready to receive them. The flames do now rage and glow. The glittering sword is wet and held over them, and the pit hath opened her mouth under them. This is just a single line from the sermon, but the entire thing continues on in that same vein. Really, what Edwards was trying to get at here is that people could die at any time, and if they were not converted, they would risk an eternity of hellfire. Edwards further warned that. The unseen, unthought-of ways and means of persons going suddenly out of the world are innumerable and inconceivable. Unconverted men walk over the pit of hell on a rotting covering, and there are innumerable places in this covering so weak that they won't bear their weight, and these places are not seen. When reading this, imagine it being presented in the most dramatic way possible. Edwards, like Whitfield, was a showman, they would have delivered this loudly and with passion. There was nothing about this sermon that would have been slow or dogmatic or in any way wrapped up in the theoretical. This would have been delivered with an energetic flourish. You could literally die at any moment, and if you do, what do you think your chances are at finding salvation? The sermon was designed to scare people into introspection and, hopefully, into correcting their sinful ways. Whitfield himself brought his energy and passion as well as he began touring the colonies, delivering equally impassioned sermons. When Whitfield first came to the colonies in 1739, he would begin his work in Philadelphia, where he would befriend local printer Benjamin Franklin. Now, Benjamin Franklin was not exactly the most religious guy, and evidently would not have agreed with much of anything that Whitfield had said. However, Franklin was impressed with his performances which he himself had attended. Franklin likewise could help Whitfield through publishing his materials in his paper, the Pennsylvania Gazette. As a quick note, obviously Benjamin Franklin entering into the podcast necessitates a far more formal introduction. However, that is going to be saved until our next episode, when we really begin looking at the life and times of Benjamin Franklin. Beginning in 1740, Whitfield would begin a tour of the colonies preaching from Georgia up through Maine. Whitfield himself was technically an Anglican, though most of his support came from the Presbyterians and the Dutch Reformed crowd. The preaching and sermons delivered by Whitfield would prove to be extremely popular, especially in New England. A history of religious awareness combined with an educated population made New England a perfect spot for Whitfield. The large number of publications were willing to reproduce his writings and sermons, and therefore quickly he was everywhere in the colony. He drew vast crowds of people excited to see him speak. Whitfield preaching for a simpler church and a return to God was the exact message that people wanted to hear. As we discussed a moment ago, it was not that Whitfield so much created these feelings. However, he was the one to help expose them. Much as we saw with Edwards, the sermons delivered by Whitfield were loud and dramatic. Whitfield's sermons focused on the real risk of hell and forced that introspection that we saw with Jonathan Edwards earlier. Whitfield would often conclude his sermons by posing the question to the crowd of if they, in their current state, were saved. After hearing these powerfully moving sermons, having the question of their own personal salvation thrown back at them, it forced that person to look at themselves critically and decide if they felt that they were doing enough for their own eternal soul. 
In New England, at least, church attendance increased following Whitfield. The work by Whitfield and Edwards was nothing short of a reactionary counterargument to years of rising rationalism in religion. Whitfield was entertaining, dramatic, and drew huge crowds. He did not need a church if one was not available and could preach in open fields. For those tired of the changes in the church during the preceding 60 years, Whitfield was preaching simplicity. It is worth mentioning that while he drew some response in the South, Whitfield's main impact was always going to be felt most up in New England. Down in Georgia, for instance, he gave sermons that apparently drew decent-sized crowds. However, for the most part, the Great Awakening's greatest impact would remain in the New England colonies. Those in the rationalist camp had little interest in moving away from what they had for so long worked to establish. However, one hallmark of the Great Awakening was the degree of interdenominational cooperation. Whitfield was already known in the colonies before crossing the Atlantic because his sermons had been sent to sympathetic preachers in America. It should likewise be noted that the flow of information is going the other direction as well, as works from men like Jonathan Edwards were published across the ocean back in London. The Great Awakening was not something that was locked into a single group, but spread through multiple denominations and congregations. As I stated previously, Whitfield himself was nominally at least an Anglican, Edwards a Congregationalist. There were Presbyterians, Dutch Reformed, Lutherans, and Baptists, all taking part in the revivalist movement. These deep connections forced the leaders of the rationalism camp to take a page out of the revivalist playbook and form alliances with other denominations in order to protect their movement from being totally overwhelmed. What would ensue in the wake of Whitfield was a war of words between the rationalists and the revivalists. The rationalists wanted a kind of theoretical, high-minded Christianity. They were interested in making sure that the old doctrines were preached and that the traditional practices of the church were closely observed. The revivalists, on the other hand, were looking for something far more uninhibited. They did not want nor see the need to limit how religion was practiced. Far less dogmatic in their concern for tradition and structure, the revivalists' primary focus was on a closer relationship with God. In many ways, at least in how religion was practiced, the revivalists had much more in common with the original desires of the New England Puritans. Doctrinally, there were major differences to be sure, especially with questions of if salvation is preordained or not. However, in terms of how the revivalists wanted a simpler form of practice, the groups are far closer. Likewise, it is worth mentioning that even amongst the revivalists, there was not a group consensus on what they should be arguing. There was a more radical wing of the movement that rejected any kind of church structure whatsoever. They likewise embraced the dramatic outbursts of the preachers, something that the more moderate revivalists would have been happy to do without. The radical-leaning factions took steps going as far as eliminating class and race distinctions. Rich, poor, white, and black could worship together and were all considered equal, at least while in church. Women, while not allowed to be ministers for themselves, found a system whereby they too could exercise great decision-making power in an individual congregation. Unsurprisingly, this was a step that few were willing to take, and therefore the more radical congregations remained a small portion of the overall movement. On the subject of race, revivalists seemed to be far less concerned with race than previous denominations were. 
But revivalists wanted numbers and were far less interested in where they found those numbers. Enslaved people tended towards the revivalist movement because, at least while in church, there was a degree of equality that they could find no place else. Despite this, the revivalist preachers were not going out of their way to denounce the practice of slavery. Except for the Quakers, who by this point had moved into the abolition camp, few were willing to openly address the evils of slavery. None of this is to suggest that racism simply ended at the church door, because that certainly was not the case. However, what it did was simply give enslaved people a place where they could worship publicly at all. Part of the reason for the reluctance to denounce slavery came from the need to grow their numbers in the South. The Southern colonies were always far more resistant to the revivalist movement. While other denominations existed amongst the poorer classes, the all-important planter class was still roundly Anglican. Within those Baptist congregations that had emerged in the South, the revivalists were well-received. The Baptists tended to be those groups that would allow slaves into their congregations. Unsurprisingly, this drew sharp rebukes and often prosecution of unlicensed preachers throughout the South by the Anglican leaders. The Great Awakening was the first, but far from the last, revivalist movement in the United States. We are going to cover other revivalist movements as we move forward throughout this podcast. Ultimately, the Great Awakening would fade rather quickly, as it moved in the direction of a more moderate position. The ability of a movement to survive on dramatic sermons of hellfire is only going to get you so far. That type of preaching requires a great deal of energy to maintain, energy that will often exhaust itself. In time, the old movements would merge back with the revivalists, creating something altogether distinct from either of the two individual groups. The Great Awakening had driven more people back to church, as attendance numbers would remain up for decades. The radicals of the revivalists would end up fading away as the moderates prevailed. The hardcore rationalist teachings ebbed back into something more simple, though not to the extent a George Whitfield would have likely wanted. To call it the Great Awakening either a success or failure would be incorrect. It really was neither of those two things. Rather, you see the more moderate ideals of the Great Awakening get adopted by the old congregations as the two camps move towards a more palatable middle ground. Interestingly, one of the longest-term takeaways came not from the message of, but rather the style of George Whitfield. People noticed how powerful sermons by men like Whitfield and Edwards were. They saw the sway a preacher could have over the congregation. Therefore, when future revivalist movements appear, they often are accompanied by that same style of preacher. Often loud and dramatic as they speak of subjects like hell, these preachers will become a staple of evangelicalism in the United States, something that remains to this day. During the 20th century, it would be men like Billy Graham who would follow that same playbook and style that George Whitfield had done before him. Whitfield really was the first colonial celebrity, as he was known from Georgia up to Maine. He provided future revivalists with the playbook that they would need to lead their own similar movements. In that way, his messages and doctrinal beliefs would have less of an overall impact than his style and approach. Next time, we are going to dive into a series of episodes looking at life in the colonies. I have spent the last several weeks talking about the emergence of a distinct culture in colonial America. 
and it is about time that we see just what I mean by that. Our tour guide for this journey is going to be a man who seemed to be involved in multiple aspects of this emerging culture, and would go on to be one of the most consequential figures in American history. I am talking, of course, about our printer friend from earlier today, Benjamin Franklin. Until then, I hope you all have a wonderful two weeks. I hope that you are staying healthy and staying safe. And I will see you back here next time as we introduce Benjamin Franklin. Franklin.